Welcome back to the Locker Room Podcast on this part two of um, this podcast episode with Jonas Dodu. Originally, it was going to be one episode, uh, but we went into so much detail and spoke for nearly two hours. We wanted to release it as, um, as two separate ones. So in podcast one or part one with Jonas, we spoke about um, his kind of background, I guess, and, and how he's got to where he has and, and big influences on, on his coaching philosophy and, and his career. And then we spoke a lot about the detail and around his philosophy of generating speed, um, linear speed, but how that transfers into change of direction, Excel, Decel, et cetera, et cetera. So we spoke a lot about the detail around that. Part two then, we're gonna talk quite a bit about transfer and, and, and our views on transferring these training modalities into performance on the pitch, which is arguably um, the, the most important thing within our team sport athletes. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about advice that Jones can give to not only technical coaches, but sports scientists, SNC coaches around developing speed and a bit of a, a closing summary. So we hope um, you enjoy part two as much as you enjoy part one. Some fascinating stuff and, and we're going to really get into the transfer of, of the training modalities now. Just a, a reach out to say thank you very much for our sponsors, um, www rit r y p t all capital letters dot app um who are sponsoring the show again for a further couple of months very very delighted to be on board with those and we're now working with them to offer online um online personal training through their through their app and, and delivering clients and, and different athletes personal training um on the online platform where we can send various uh, programs and monitor training load and workload and get feedback on that so head over to the website www.dlysportscience.com and you'll see um, our link and and the collaboration we've got with with rip.app there some great stuff going on with the guys thanks guys um, i hope you enjoy part two um, and here it is first one i'm going to talk around is is the deceleration stuff and i know you kind of within this COVID period, you've done a little series around deceleration and it was mm. something that emerged. For me, deceleration, whether that's within a running cyclical style or acceleration phase, whatever it is, or whether it's actually teaching someone to stop, which in team sports is quite important. I think it's been a quality and skill that's been lost. And I think people have actually forgot about teaching people how to stop effectively, um, whether that's underpinning physiology or whether that's actually technical models and details. Where do you sit on it in terms of coaching this on the field? So what are kind of your go-tos when you're talking about deceleration? And then obviously a little bit then around physiology outside of the, the technical model of, of qualities you're trying to develop. Fine. I think when it comes to decel or excel or sprinting, it's always about stiffness. Um, can you, and stiffness, not just rigidity. Um, <clears throat> it's can you produces like a drop jump right so stiffness you want you want short ground contact times you want minimal bend in a drop jump but you also want lots of projection lots of power output so i think stiffness and i had a conversation the other day and i got it wrong so i'm going to see if i get it right i think stiffness is something like uh, the, the the output of the event so power output um hip hip power hip impulse divided by the amount of bend in in the limb yeah or in the in the joints across the board so you don't just want rigidity, you want large forces in short amount of time. Um, and so uh, that to me is deceleration. So teaching people to abruptly stop is important. Um, and doing it away from this, the task is important so that you can see 
when skill is divided, when skill isn't involved, how do they organize their body? Do they load their contractile tissues more? So maybe sit into it more, load their quads more uh, in deeper angles, um, or do they, they actually load their passive structures a bit more? Do they go a bit more bone on bone? Do they use the rigidity of their joints to, to help them be stiff and, and create these large deceleration forces or not? Um, do they go heel to toe in the landing and actually really use their, their ankle and their lower leg structures to support the force dissipation essentially and, and the force creation to stop? Um, or do they land in a real toey landing, um, which, which would not encourage the foot to be involved as much and the lower segment and will essentially shoot the forces further up the chain? Um, and do they go narrow in their steps or do they go wide in their steps? And it just, this starts to encourage you to understand what, where is their strengths, where are their weaknesses? Um, but the, probably the most distinguishing thing between good and bad performance is how do they organize their trunk? During these deceleration steps, does their trunk rock forwards, side to side, or is it relatively still so that they use their hip? And Sophia Nymphus talks about the hip as a gyro. Do they keep their trunk still so they can use their hip to drop their center of mass and apply large forces? This is important. This is probably the biggest importance. Um, and you think about it in, in, in reference or transfer to performance. If you can do that, you can start to, during deceleration, already rotate towards or away from where you need to go. If you're in rugby, during the deceleration, you can fend and use your upper body. Um, and, and during any other sport, you can pan and you can do other things and you can feel stable. If, you're, if your trunk isn't stable and it's falling forward side to side, you can't really perform a skillful action until such time as it stabilizes. Um, so deceleration as a quality, this is how I would look at it, this is how I see it in isolation. Um, in the ACL and ankle rehabbers and the hip guys as well sometimes, um, trying to overload deceleration on the field is important as well in the gym. Um, for team sport players, again, if you've got a gaffer who uses lots of, of small-sided games, then deceleration takes its place for sure as a skill um, in preparation for that. And I might do some deceleration overload movements prior to those things, just to, most of it is maybe to remind them of the, the movement patterns that they don't choose to use. Maybe activate some of the, the, again, the hamstring, the posterior chain stuff to encourage them to co-contract around the knee, not just to overload the knee. Um, maybe I'm challenging their trunk whilst they're decelerating so they can get these co-contractions again around the trunk rather than just being passive and slack on it. Um, and then when we look to physical preparation, yeah, I, I'm, I'm all for flywheel. I'm all for flywheel because of what it does for the concentric as well as the eccentric capabilities and the breaking strength. Um, and, and does it have to be flywheel? No, you can squat, you can do plies, you can do lots of different things. But I think once you're using non-flywheel stuff, you need to really focus and make sure your exercise design and the constraints of your exercise really encourage a quick deceleration, a catching of the, the descending limb so that it can explode up. Whereas you can do a counter movement jump, you can jump 50 centimeters by going deeper and not really trying to break early, but going deeper, stopping maybe passively and then spending all your energy on the concentric part. 
or you can jump 50 centimeters by going more shallow and really breaking early and, and getting some eccentric utilization. Some of that eccentric action turning into concentric, that's load and explode. That's using a coil. That's more plyometric. That's more like your sport. Rarely are you given enough, uh, given the opportunity to go as deep as you want to slow down quickly, uh, slow down slowly and then extend your limbs. So being able to break and create breaking strength and develop breaking strength across your physical stuff in the gym and out in the field um, is of a high priority. Perfect. Thank you very much. Um, moving on to the, the, the next question, Jonas, is around, okay, it's a big thing for me. It's something that I'm always thinking about philo philosophically, if you like. So when we develop our, um, our speed properties, whether it's acceleration, top speed, whether it's flies, whatever we're doing in a closed setting, whether it's running drills, my biggest thing is within the limited time that a practitioner has, and I know you spoke a little bit about this on the Pacey uh, podcast, across the week, maybe you've got two hard training sessions that you can get into a little bit of real high volume technical speed work. Mm. How do we then, okay, we can manipulate the session design, I get it, and we can make it more cognitive based and we can get more decision making in there. But my thing is that I struggle to see sometimes a real transfer of players being able to execute a close skill quite good and quite quickly they get you know within the technical points they get it but when it goes into a situation where they're not thinking at all about the running mechanics how do we ensure that that transfer happens and in your experience what what does it make for that to happen and how long does it take for it to get there i know it's probably individual but based across different experiences i think it's always path of least resistance so if during your technical individual cognitive type session they're running well, but that's not running fast. They're just running well. They're making the right shapes. The transfer is rare. Um, is there a benefit in it? There's probably still benefit because they're making the right shapes. You're encouraging them to have the pelvis in the right position. And you look at Jonah Mendegusha's research and a lot of research, it shows that your, your lumbar pelvic disassociation or maybe just your, your anterior pelvic tilt at the beginning of a season is better than it is at the end of the season and um, some re really great, great research that's gonna come out from Shane um, Val, he'll be in my next workshop, I, I'm probably bastardizing his surname, but it's Shane, his easiest way, is basically says that under fatigue, in the same person, on the same, a number of people on the same day, as you fatigue, your anterior tilt increases. And so we know anterior tilt is needed for extension, but we also know that too much of it and being stuck in it is a, could be a, pre, um, a predispose you to injury, right? Definitely predispose you to poor performance. Um, so just changing shapes and give it and encouraging the pelvis to be in a better position, encouraging better length tension relationships of your posterior chain. Just just doing some sprint drills, I think is, is like anything. It's like squatting, it's like lunging. It's like, it's just part of general health and preparation. Um, because we don't know if the lunge or the squat or the plank we're doing is transferring into football, right? So it's the same scenario. Um, if you want to maximize transfer of those things, the athlete has to be able to run faster. That's your litmus test. If you've done, if whatever you're training you're doing, the, ch the shapes that are changing are resulting in faster speeds, faster excels or faster decelerations, then it's basically proving to the athlete, to yourself, that the path of least resistance has shifted. Before, when I tried to run at maximal speed, 
this is the way I did it. I now have been taught, but also I have the physical capabilities, so I now can run faster. If I can run faster and I'm now in a game and I have to run fast, I subconsciously call upon the, the easiest, quickest way for me to run fast. So I'm more likely to utilize this new skill that's been developed. If I only know how to run well, but not faster, so no is towards teaching, not faster maybe is towards the training. Maybe I don't have the physical capabilities to run faster. Or I can run faster as a one-off, but I can't do it six runs in, in eight minutes, okay? So maybe I haven't got this, the, this, the repeat sprintability to run faster. It, you could say that's because it's aerobic, or maybe because I haven't been exposed to the need to run fast, have a short recovery and run fast again. Um, either way, I rarely see transfer unless I see um, players get faster in training. If they're running, if they're doing linear sprints, and they're not actually getting to higher top speeds, if they're accelerating and not actually running faster, rarely do I see it turning to the game, into football. And even in track and field, the, the, most, the easiest lesson is track and field. If players, could, if people, if athletes can run fast in training, great. But if they can't run fast next to other people in training, they rarely run fast in races. They become training champions, but they can't run fast in a race. We rarely see things happen in a race that we haven't seen a touch of it happen already in, um, in training. So it's a, it's a similar thing with, with this scenario. If your players, if you've got 9.2 meters per second guys and they can't touch 9.9 .9 and can't touch 10, um, or they can, they, they can run 9.5, but you ask them to do a number of sprints and it quick goes from 9.5 to 8.2, then you've got an issue for sure. Yeah, uh, not an issue, you've still got an opportunity you are stimulating, adapting, but the skill hasn't stabilized yet. So if it hasn't stabilized, why will it actualize? Actualizing is all about transfer to your environment, um, to your competitive environment. You have to go through all of the stages to expect it to happen here. So do you think then, uh, let's say you're doing two 10 minute blocks of running drills a week. That's probably realistic in most team sport environments with all the other stuff that's going on do you think a lot of increase in speed and maybe some changes in technical model is down to a change in physiology so like they've become stiffer at the ankle so now their ground contact might be a little bit shorter which then affects their swing phase 100 i'm really adverse to people just looking pretty and and just because they've made they've made better shapes that we perceive to be better that are maybe more right angles and more ergonomically pleasing to our eyes um, are they faster? No, I think it all comes down to swing leg retraction. Can they can they um, organize themselves so they get more eccentric stress in their distal hamstrings, um, so that they have really large co-contractions and essentially isometric forces going through their posterior chain, and those forces turn into stiffness on the ground. And if it turns into if the ankles are allowed to be stiff on the ground and the ankle and the knee aren't moving, then only the hip can move. So as a result, hip power or hip acceleration or velocity is now higher. So if you can make your hip velocity higher, that's what you want. That's just running fast, right? Mm -hmm. And if you, want to, if you get your hip velocity faster by attacking the ground and being more elastic, then you're being very, very powerful. That's what we want. Not, not just making good shapes, good shapes that are slack and land on the ground are a bit soft and have very um, poor or um, weak hip extensions. We want extremely explosive hip extensions 
and that's what sprinting is. That's all it is. So it's not about the run, just about the running shapes. It's about, it really is about large forces, short amount of time, the right direction. That's all it is. Um, so if you're doing your 10 minutes of sprint drills, but you're not doing your 40 minutes of, of really qual good quality posterior chain development, if your guys haven't got a good strength rate ratio, um, then you've just got one part of a puzzle. You need to have both parts if you think that it's going to then transfer into performance. And if I had to choose, I would, it's going to sound blasphemous. If I had to choose, I would choose the physical over the technical. If I had input in a week, I would choose the physical over the technical. Um, the, but the physical has to be done well. Why? Because it comes back to self-organization. If you've given them the force and the rate of force development in the right areas, um, and the timing of how to use it, they are more likely to self-organize and run well. Yeah, they are more likely to do it. If you've just given them the technical awareness and they don't have any of the physical, they're not likely to self-organize. They're likely to hide away because football after the, first, after the first five minutes, you've done one or two sprints and now your physical capabilities really is your limiting factor. Then yeah, you're gonna call upon using all of the compensation strategies and all the movement patterns that hide away from these physical limitations. Um, so I'm a track coach that's saying that the gym is more important than the technique, but I'm also someone adverse to looking at cleans and squats and RDLs and saying that these are the only solutions. I, I disagree. I think most of the time they're not um, coached in a way that transfers well to footballing and to sprinting. They're coached well that transfers well to weightlifting and Olympic lifting and to um, powerlifting, but the constraints are very, very different. Um, and so my SNC hat in, in, in that scenario is one more of a physio than it is a strength and conditioning coach. Most of my programs have adapted and evolved because I've blown up hamstrings and I've watched them rehab and the players and, and the athletes have come back faster than prior. And I'm like, but they weren't doing any of my stuff. They were doing all of your stuff, Ed, or they're doing all of your stuff. And I'm, I'm like, oh, what's the difference? Then I realized, oh, targeting posterior chain muscles, targeting your, um, your extension patterns in a way that transfers best to coordination and best to the real underpinning physical qualities that you need for your sport is better than just doing the um, heralded mythical exercises that everyone believes are really important. Perfect answer. Good. Cheers, Jonas. Um, just moving on to within the transfer theme, I've heard you speak a little and you consulted for Eddie Jones as well, talking about this concept of game speed and like the way that Eddie likes to coach and, and transfer this speed into rugby, essentially. Uh, uh, apart from driving high intensity within that session, how else does that transfer over? So what is you and Eddie looking at within that session to really have maximum transfer of game speed? Or is it just making sure players are good intent, maximal intent and training at the highest intensity for the whole time? Yeah, I think it's, um, I think my job is to make sure players come to him clear and confident of how to run fast. So having good intent is great. Yeah, that's motivation. But being empowered and confident isn't the same as intent. It's, it's, it's very different. Um, and you see a lot of people drive intent but players are trying hard, but don't really know what they're doing. They're just trying hard. And they're, they're not fearful of their bodies, which is great for intent. It means there's no pacing strategies, but they're maybe still applying movement strategies are more, that are more likely to break them down 
um, after either high-speed running or repeated high-speed running. So there's, a, there's an educational part there where making sure the players are happy and um, know what to do and how to do it. And then there's a confidence part, which I'm, I'm sure they interplay well together. Um, but my job is to make sure the players are prepared to train at an intensity above what Eddie is going to take them to. Fantastic. Um, last and one. On, on that, sorry, and on Go that, on. really the philosophy of train hard, win easy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's difficult sometimes in team sports if you don't have the players who are durable to it. Um, I've, I've worked at a football team where the, the manager has pulled all the speed training and this is it comes back to what what we talk about in terms of lazy athletes he's pulled all the speed training because the previous season during pre-season they had some hamstring injuries and so he believed um, speed training is uh, we don't need speed training and then for whatever reason he was going through a philosophical ev evolution in how he trained so he trained really long and really slow and then they had the previous two seasons spent a lot of money on um, a number of players who were big stature, yeah, six foot two, were all almost heavy set. They could play rugby, but were ballers. So he had this real physical dominating team who came to him explosive. For a year and a half, he trained them slow and were now not explosive. The rationale that the board, that the, the, the leadership and that essentially the coaches were given um, was that the players were fat now and that's why they were slow. But they're at a professional team. They've been doing caliper tests and fat testing consistently. The players were leaner at this point, not fatter, but they looked fat and slow and cumbersome. Yeah. And so the blame was on these players for being heavy and not being athletic and not being committed when actually they bloody were. They were just undertrained or improperly trained. Um, and this, this is always the same thing. I always hear the same thing. Um, and owners, owners, they own the club. So, you know, they feel like their perspective is the real perspective. They watch and say, that player is fat, get him to be thinner. No, that player is slow, get him to be faster. He came to you heavier, but faster. He's now slower, but leaner. Body weight isn't the issue. Something else is the issue. Um, and so I don't know where that analogy or that story came from, but I was inspired. Now that came into your head, it comes back down to the accountability. How much, how much coaches, how much people at top level have real accountability for what they're doing day to day with these players, right? Because you're working with some talented players and if it doesn't go right, the easiest thing is to blame the players. Always, always. always and and it's the most right. common thing you see, even in academy level, all the way through, it really is. Um, mm -hmm. Just brought me back to a thing we spoke about, I think, last week with Ben Bradley, who's at Bournemouth. And we spoke about that the fitness coach and the SNC coach, a sports scientist or sprint coach, can do everything they want in isolation. But mm -hmm. if, like you talk about with Eddie Jones, if that training isn't at that highest intensity all the time, players aren't going to be prepared. It doesn't matter what you do in isolation. It has to be a whole program. And that's important to, to take away, right? Mm. Um, Jonas, just one more from me, and then we'll get a, see if Ben wants to, to come in before we wrap up. When I hear you talk, and not just you talk, but a lot of coaches within athletics, technical coaches or athletics yeah. coaches, sprint coaches or whatever discipline, I hear a real sounding um, understanding knowledge within a whole different areas within coaching within biomechanics within physiology within psychology I hear real in-depth knowledge and that's I know you're well educated you've done a master's and a lot of coaches are do you think and it's something that I've seen or why do we think that coaches and technical coaches in other sports 
necessarily don't have that understanding or don't want to have that understanding and kind of leave it up to the specialist in that area and it kind of creates a little bit of um, things being a bit fragment um, amongst the team I think anything on that from your experiences or thoughts around it maybe I'm wrong maybe summarize it one more time for me I think I think athletics coaches from what I've spoke to have a better knowledge of the whole training process mm. within sports science, within physio, within rehab, within the technical element of what you're trying to do. Whereas mm. I think technical coaches and team sports only have their hat on the technical and tactical development of that sport. They kind of don't, they're not interested really in the sports science, the physiology, and that's up to the experts to talk about. Is there, an, is there anything to that? Is there a reason to that? Is there one way? I, I, I think that in, in athletics, so I, I wanted to go into athletics. Why? Because I wanted to know how to, um, I, I, was in, I was an SNC coach. I was encouraged by the fact that I was learning more, but in the SNC community, it, was, it felt very siloed and it felt like we didn't really have a good control of the end product. We measured ourselves by weight on a bar or maybe VBT, and, and then we were really happy. Um, whereas in track and field, you actually have to get someone to their fittest, fastest, um, and healthiest point at a specific date or a number of specific dates in the year. You have to undulate and oscillate volume, low density, all these key things, specificity, generalism. You've got underload, you've got loads of components you've got to juggle so that you can get a person at their best shape at a specific point. And it just seemed like a really nice challenge. Um, it seemed like that actually once you understood that, you understood how the, I guess, the, all these, all these um, planets that you're juggling over here you understood how they evolved and worked around each other and that they weren't opposite. None of them are opposites to each other. They just contribute and sometimes conflict with each other in the right doses. And so that to me became the challenge. Um, I think in athletics, we need to get our, our athletes fit, uh, fast, uh, in uh, ability to manage, endurance, develop speed, endurance, strength, power. We need to do all these things to get it right. And, we have control of all these things. Whereas in team sports or in, an, in a typical SNC role, you are in your role, you're here. This is all you care about, or you're over here. This is all you care about. And you measure yourself by that, 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 that one thing. Whereas if I, in SNC, if my track guys, for example, across the season, when they're running their fastest, sometimes they get a bit weaker. If we was to measure them by their squat, if they're gonna measure them by their counter movement jump height, sometimes the height drops across the winter but peak power goes up or but velocity goes up. So it's like, it's almost through the journey, you start to realize what metrics actually matter, what to hang your hat on um, and what metrics are important as part of the journey, but you drop them off. You don't worry about them at certain parts of the journey. Um, and, and I think maybe uh, really it's, it's the culture. It's the difference in the culture of the sports, the accountability um, and, and the control that we have. Um, the ability to play around with all these components and start to realise the truth of, of how important they are, how maximal they have to be to contribute to performance. Perfect. Top stuff, Jonas. We've taken up so much of your time. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I've got one, one closing question for you um, and one piece of advice. If you can give one piece of advice to SNC coaches, sports scientists, even technical coaches who'll be listening to this around getting players faster and it can be as philosophical as you like, 
what would you give to those players uh, to those those practitioners yeah i think like i said train for speed rather than just training speed and i think if you train for speed if you develop the underpinning qualities for speed um and you do it in a balanced way you essentially near enough develop the qualities you want for decel for acceleration for maximum speed um, you develop the qualities you want to make people robust enough to handle and not just survive, but thrive under really high loads or really high intensities. Um, and you naturally, as a result, end up making them run faster with, with maybe better technique without really having to overcoach it. So I, I would say that at the beginning, people would say, if you want the player to get faster, send them to Jonas, send them to, to Altis, send them to, to Faye Downey, send them to speed specialists. Um, whereas actually I think now there's a bit of a twist and I'm seeing great SNC coaches change their hat and go, okay, I'm just a great coach. I can coach SNC. I can rehab. I can make players faster. I can make them fitter and I can do it in a combined way. So th that would be my advice is to, um, think laterally. You need to develop and really establish a solid philosophy about the what's and the why's. Um, and then you need to develop a really good coaching eye so that you're not reliant on technology and you're not reliant on GPS or timing gates to tell you, are they better or not? Um, so I, I guess it's, it's to start with your coaching philosophy around training for speed and, and actually getting players fit for purpose, not just aerobically fit. Getting players um, training for speed, not just training speed and fit for purpose. It's those two key things. Perfect. That's class, mate. Ben, anything for you to, to wrap up, summarise there? No, no. Perfect. I thought it was a fantastic insight um, overall. And just, as you said, Jonas has really touched upon that. It's just a global a global approach to developing speed and nothing's in, uh, nothing's in isolation. So, fantastic. I could pepper, with, pepper him with questions all day, but I know he's taken up <laughs> enough of his time, so... Um, I've, I've been, uh, I've, I like David Gray and I read a lot of his stuff and, and watch his videos and blah, blah, blah. This, this whole purpose of liminal thinking and this whole discussion around liminal thinking, sitting in this place where you're at the edge of what you believe and perceive um, and you're being challenged by people outside of your circle. If you only talk to people within your circle, you'll only learn the things that you already know, probably. Um, whereas... And I think this whole, I'm not going to talk politics and, and, and COVID and Black Lives Matter and all that other stuff, but what you're seeing at the moment, um, because we've had lots of time to be on the internet and lots of time for people to complain and give their opinion, is that clearly there are different worlds. Different people live in different worlds. Yeah? So if we bring this back to sport, I typically lived in this track and field world, but I was from team sports. I didn't wear a pair of spikes. I wore a pair of spikes maybe when I was 16 twice but I have never pushed out of blocks really competitively in a race. I'm not from track and field. I'm from rugby. Um, but track and field is the world I came into. And then I work a lot in football, but I'm kind of in this middle place that I'm, I'm not really from either of these worlds. And it's helpful for me. It's not a hindrance. It's helpful because I walk into a, a, a meeting, a, a coaches meeting or medical meeting before, um, before training and the discussion I hear is from a different world. And I ask questions that maybe is not normally asked. They're taken for granted. And, you know, in my experience with, with a number of the people I've consulted with, but Derby County probably being the most intimate um, relationships I've, I've built with, with staff, the, 
the stories they tell me about their perception at the beginning versus their perception six months later or even six weeks later is always really kind of not just encouraging but eye-opening to me there are things that I think are normal that are not normal in this world. There are things I think are normal that are not normal in this world. There are things that are normal in this world that are very far from normal in this world. And everyone benefits from hearing the other side. Hearing from someone asking a stupid question that to you is very different, but to them is, is, is um, really important. Um, and I'd bring you back to Eddie Jones. He spent time with so many different football coaches. Um, different codes of rugby um, with track coaches um, with psychologists he spends time in all these other places because he knows that if he just spends time with other rugby union coaches he's just going to be hearing the same stuff so maybe that's the most important advice out of all of this stuff and go and go watch David Gray on and, and liminal thinking it's about being able to push your boundaries of perception by spending time in different environments that's class, Jonas. Um, thank you very much from me and all the listeners, mate, for all your time. I'm sure they're going to get so much out of this. So thank you for your time. It's been top class. Um, and Locker Room Podcast, we'll, we'll see you soon next week. Thanks, guys. Thanks.